I could take your scriptures and turn over to Matthew 5, 20, as uh, we continue in our Core 52. Today, we're talking about deeper morality, and really, the whole focus is this word righteousness. Uh, so as we've done before, let's all stand, and the scripture's going to come up here, Matthew 5, 20, and we're going to read this together. Here we go, Matthew 5, 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it sounds so simple. We read this over 500 times in Scripture to be righteous. But Lord, uh, it's hard to be righteous day in and day out because righteousness simply means to do what is right. And so, Lord, making those tough decisions is tough. So, Lord, be with us today. Be with Claudia and I as we just open your word and just walk with you on this path of righteousness. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Righteousness, over 500 times as I've mentioned in scripture, and there's a lot of definitions. So if you really want the true definition of anything, what do you do? Wikipedia. So here we go. Wikipedia says, righteousness is the quality or state of being morally correct and justifiable. Christianity.com says, righteousness is the attribute that belongs to God and is manifested in his laws. No man can be justified by his work apart from God's grace. I'm a simple guy, so I love this definition of righteousness by Greg Groeschel. Righteousness is choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. There it is. Every day in our lives, we have countless decisions. Claudia's going to share this later, but uh, I think it's over... 3,500 decisions every day. And you made a big one already this morning. Uh, you know what that was? The snooze came on, and you, you may have hit it a couple times. You weren't here first service, so don't feel guilty. But you're here. Give yourselves a huge hand. You made a good decision. You made a right decision. But think after you get up how many decisions we have to make. And then on top of that, the Lord says, I want you to begin making the right decisions day in and day out. Sometimes the decisions really are not important at all, really. Uh, You get up, you drink a cup of coffee. Do I want creamer or not? Should I eat that bagel or not? Should I, you know, and then you kind of move through life. And a lot of those decisions don't matter. But sometimes, and we know it, there are big decisions. And we know that this decision will not only affect me, it potentially can affect a lot of people around me. And there are actually what I would call legacy decisions, and that is you sometimes will make a life decision, and it may affect generations to come. How many of you are a part of your family history because of huge decisions that were made maybe 100 years ago? Anyone? Absolutely. If you just start thinking about major decisions that have been made, right or wrong decisions, they affect us. So this is an important thing that we talk about. So let me share with you a story about a monumental decision to walk away from what was easy to pursue what was right and the impact of that. How many of you have ever flown out of O'Hare Airport in Chicago? Raise your hand. Most of you, good. How many would say, one to 10, it's my favorite thing to do, it's your favorite thing? Anyone? No, no, O'Hare Airport, just, if you, if you haven't done that, you need to do that. So you can always say, it could be worse. We could be at O'Hare Airport. I mean, it is just 
crazy. Over a half a million people go there. Now, I don't know if this is true. This is coming from uh, the Catholic group in the, the Chicago area. They say, rumor has it, you can't even go to purgatory unless you go through O'Hara Airport. I mean, it is one busy, busy place. How did they get the name O'Hara Airport? Now, this is interesting. It is named after Edward Butch O'Hara. He was a World War II fighter pilot. Uh, His greatest mission was actually right around uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and him and a squadron actually saved a major battleship. He went on to almost be like a poster child the first year of the war uh, because of the way he spoke in front of others about standing up for the United States and being a pilot. And he died about uh, two years after that, about around 1943. You'd say, well, yeah, but a lot of folks, a lot of folks died uh, fighting for our country. But there's more. It's his dad is the real story. You may have heard of him. His name was Easy Eddie O'Hara. He was a lawyer. Uh, and he was an entrepreneur, and he had an interesting business partner. Anybody want to guess? Al Capone. Now, how would you like to be Al Capone's bookkeeper? You think you've got stress. And you may wonder how in the world they ever brought Al Capone down. Anybody remember? They didn't get him for murder. It was tax evasion. And who gave them all the records? This guy, Easy Eddie. Anybody want to guess, did Eddie live long after that? The answer would be no, he did not. Now, why did he make that decision? Why did he decide, I'm not going to do the easy wrong. I'm going to do the really difficult right. He watched his boy growing up. As he watched his boy growing up, he over and over said, I don't want him to end up like I'm ending up. I'm going to do what's right, knowing it's going to cost me my life to give him his freedom. That pretty awesome story. And so they came to the point of how we're going to name this airport. They looked at the father and the son. They said, what a great story. What a great name for an airport. Folks, the decisions we make matter. Warren Worsby said, Jesus didn't destroy the law by fighting it. He destroyed the law by fulfilling it. This little section we're talking about today about righteousness, it's tucked away in this Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular section, uh, I always call it rapid fire. Jesus says, it has been said, but I say to you, it has been said, but and he just keeps saying, I know this is the way you've thought about the law. Now I want you to put it into motion. It's one thing to know the law. It's another thing to allow the law to change your heart. That's what we're talking about today. Today, this morning, we're going to share biblical perspective of righteousness and then a practical next step approach to doing the right thing. If you've got your Bibles, we're actually going to land on an interesting text. It's from the Old Testament book of Haggai. And I want to share with you something that makes every minister anxious. They just don't fess up. And it comes in the first verse of what I'm ready to read. It's when there's a ridiculous name and you know you're going to butch the name. So I'm letting you know up front, I'm going to butch this name, okay? And if we have somebody here named Zerubbabel, I'm sorry that I butched your name, but here we go. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel (laughs) declares the Lord. Claudia, am I the only one that frets that? Claudia even changes the name. She would just say Zeb. Okay, so here we go. Declares the Lord, be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak. Oh, my land. Okay, the high priest, be strong, you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Uh, 
for I'm with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I've covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Now, if you're reading this, highlight this verse. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, while I once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. As Haggai was penning this message, I can't imagine how excited he was because in his life, in his world, that meant God's going to rebuild a temple. And this isn't going to be any temple. It will be greater than the temple that you worshiped in before that had been destroyed 70 years previous. Anybody remember who built that temple? Solomon. Today, if you were to build that temple, it would be $30 million. That's a pretty impressive structure. What's interesting is all scholars have looked at this and said, and this is interesting, what Haggai didn't even realize is this was a foreshadowing of Jesus. He was writing, thinking about a man-made temple. That's not what this is about. It's about an eternal temple. He's actually talking about the church to come. That's what's going to shake the world. That's what's going to change everything. It's Jesus Christ. And it's those who follow Jesus because that becomes the church. And the church is not what? A building. It's not a building at all. The church is all of you being the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You cannot stop the church because the church is not a building. You can tear a church down. You can destroy every physical church. Will that destroy the church? No way. Let me give you one classic example. That is what's going on right now in China. It's called the underground church. And it's amazing what's going on. I watched this little documentary on the underground church in China. First, I was amazed at the places and the times they will worship. So there's one church, and this missionary is talking about going to these different churches. Here's one church. They meet every day, get this, at 4.30 to 6.30 a.m. in a cave. So tomorrow morning, I've already booked a spot at Wolf Cave, McCormick's Creek, and let's see how many of us show up. Well, I'm not showing up. So anyway, think about the commitment. Now, why would they do that? Because I guarantee the authorities are like, nobody in their right mind would meet at 4.30. Well, they're not in their right mind. That's what Jesus does. He messes us up, right? Gets better. They also meet in barns. There's other groups that meet intentionally in their outreaches outside in open fields. In Shanghai, over 25 million people in that whole area, there's over 3,000 and counting house churches. You can't stop the church. Why? 
because of Jesus Christ. And there's a penalty. Think about this. If you organize a religious gathering, you will receive a fine between sixteen dollars and $48,000. Think about that. And if you are a part of being in a religious gathering, they can fine you between $3,200 and $32,000. Can you imagine if you walk out that door before you get out the drive, somebody pulls you over and they said, were you at the worship service today? Yes, get out your checkbook and write a check for $32,000. How many of you would be back next Sunday? Well, seriously, that, think about that. And yet there are people all over the world and they're saying, I'll do whatever it takes to be a part of this. Why? Because it's not about a building. It's about being the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. It's about taking the hard right, not the easy wrong. Of all the decisions, that's a big one. To allow God to work through you in amazing ways. So I just want you to know how grateful I am to be a part of everything going on here and everything going on. Sherwood Oaks, there's just so many stories of helping others and serving others. So here's just a couple of quick ones. You know, we've talked about uh, throughout the last year, it's called the Dollar Club, and people just give random dollars at all of our sites, and then they, they just allow people to, to share stories of people who are in need. You don't have to be connected to Sherwood Oaks, just people that they know are in need, and they want to help them. And uh, they always say it's a hand up, not uh, it's to help them up, not a hand out, and I love that. And so here's a couple. One is a young family of three. Um, they have a newborn, and they had to make uh, a move into some permanent housing. They wanted to buy a place of their own, but there was so many repairs, they didn't have near enough money to put the down payment down. And Sherwood Oaks came along, side them, and helped them with these other uh, needs in the house and projects so that they could have their own house. That's life-changing stuff. There was a disabled single mother who was uh, working, or excuse me, had been um, served by the New Hope Family Shelter who had been beaten. And the agency got together and found out that some of her greatest needs were some of the most basic things that we take for granted. For example, a washing machine. That one washing machine would help her free up time so she didn't have to go to a laundromat and put the coins in. Remember those fun days? She wrote a huge thank you card back to Sherwood Oaks and also said if there was ever a time that they wanted to video her story, even though she's vulnerable, she would let people share that story with others because she's just so grateful that at the lowest point of her life, the church stepped in. Folks, there's so many ways that we can be the hands and feet of Christ. There's so many decisions to be made. And it all starts with this one thing. Do the next right thing. And I'm going to have Claudia come up and share with you from there. And while she's walking up, she hates it when I do this. Let's give Claudia a huge hand. We appreciate everything Claudia does. Well, you know, my kids are both athletes, and they get it all from their mom. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is that good? Yes, that's good. Thank you. All right, I'm set. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning, um, and I love the topic 
talking about righteousness. Because, you know, living a life of righteousness is a relationship and a lifestyle. And it's a journey. Living a righteous life is a journey that changes everything. It changes everything we are, everything we're not, and everything we hope to be as we take a step towards what is right and another one and another one. You know, no matter what valleys or mountains that we have to face, there's one thing that's always available to all of us that will move us through them, and that's the next right thing. I love the poet boy, shepherd, David, who became a king. And he gave, gives a beautiful example of what it takes to live a next right thing life. And he wrote it in a poem, a familiar poem that we all love. And I love how the message translates this poem. It goes like this. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk by my side. Most likely, this poem was written in one of the darkest hours of David's life, when he was grief-stricken and heartbroken at his son's rebellion. David knew the valleys. He'd experienced them his whole life. In Psalm 27, he writes that his mom and his dad rejected him. You might know the, fam the, the feeling of not being loved by your family. It's dark and hard. He started with that. And then you know his brothers made fun of him and mocked him. Saul tried to kill him. But this psalm, some of the commentaries I read said this psalm, Psalm 23, was written with a broken heart words that have impacted generations to come. A reminder that as we face our own valleys, we need to catch our breath and do the next right thing. The next right thing is always available to all of us. It can be small, like pick up a dirty sock, wash a, dirt, wash a dirty shirt, get out of bed, or as huge as forgive over and over and over, or make a hard phone call. But the next right thing is always available, and it'll keep us from getting stuck in the dark valley that David talks about. And we don't want to get stuck in the valley of the shadow of death. It's a real place, and it's scattered with the bones of paralyzed and fair, fear sheep who didn't make it through the valley. They didn't make it because they stopped. They stopped walking. They got stuck. And I know many of you are walking through dark valleys right now, facing really hard things in your life. I know some of you are right now. <clears throat> and I wish with all my heart that I could say to you, just jump over that valley. Just walk around it. Or rent a helicopter and fly over it. But David says, no, we have to walk through that valley. We have to take another step and another step. Because David knows those dark valleys, if we keep walking, will lead us into green pastures. You know, an interviewer asked one of my favorite theologians, Dallas Willard, if a person wants to grow spiritually, what would your advice be? Where would they start? 
He answered simply, do the next right thing you, ought to know, you know you ought to do. Nothing will drive you into the kingdom of God like trying to do the next right thing that's right because you will need help and you will get it because that's where God is. God is in the next right thing. So let's just start right now with the next right thing by taking some of David's advice and catching our breath. Maybe are some of you like me and have had a hectic thought start to the morning? If you have, will you say, yes, ma'am? Oh, good, I'm not the only one. Well, maybe we need a deep breath. So <clears throat> let's just take a deep breath right now. Deep breath, all of us just, oh, that felt pretty good, didn't it? Let's take another one. Deep breath. Feels good. Catch our breath. Now repeat after me. <clears throat> I'm okay. I'm loved. Now turn to the person next to you and say, I'm okay. <laughs> I love this quote by Andy Stanley. In light of my present, in light of my past experience, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? A reminder that our present decisions will one day be our past that will one day show up our future. Right now, choices are so high. John's right, 35, did you say 3,500 or 35,000 choices a day? Whatever. John said, let's go 1,000. Lots of choices every day. One of the things I read was we have 200 choices just about what food we're going to eat. Um, my husband and my favorite guy and I had had one of those days, you know how you have them where there's just choice after choice and thing after thing to do. And we went to a restaurant and Ken said, you know what? I am so tired of making choices today. I'm just going to say to the waiter, bring me some food. <laughs> you ever felt like that? So many choices, priorities to set, goals to meet, desires, things to consider. You know, so often they seem big and looming, but Jesus reminds us, just do the next right thing in front of you. So often, right after Jesus performed a miracle, he gave a simple next thing to do. To the paralytic, he said, get up, pick up your bed and go home. To Jairus and his wife, after raising their daughter from the dead, he didn't lecture them about dedicating their lives to, to Jesus or about what grand plans they should be making for their daughter. Not at all. He said, she's hungry. The next right thing they were to do was to make her lunch. The leper, the paralytic, Jairus and his wife were given clear instructions by Jesus about what to do next. The next right thing. Not the next big thing. Not the next impressive thing. Just the next right thing in front of us. Just that small right thing to do moves us forward. Does sometimes, do you ever feel like I do, that the people around you are taking big steps but you're just taking little tiny ones, if any at all. If you feel that way, say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> oh, good, I'm not the only one. I remember especially feeling that way when I had little kids, when I had uh, babies at home, and I felt like all I was doing was dirty diapers, dirty dishes, dirty faces, dirty kids. Know what I mean? But Jesus says and reminds us it's those small moments that are so important and that move us forward. You know, um, here is a picture of El Capitan. It's a vertical rock formation in Yosemite National Park. It's about 3,000 feet high. 
And the Don Wall is a route on the south side, on the south side of El Capitan, and it's by far the hardest, biggest wall to climb in the world. I wanted to show you a clip of two climbers who were the first in the world to use only their hands and feet to scale what called the impossible, the Don Wall. So here it is. there, buddy. Hang on. Well done, Tommy. <laughs> I didn't like to see when he went I kind of wanted to say, hang on. My goodness. It took incredible courage and determination to accomplish that climb. The Don Wall seems insurmountable, but did you notice by taking very small handholds and very small footholds, Tommy and Kevin did the next right thing thousands and thousands of times until they reach the summit. Tiny steps are powerful. They will move us through the valley one small increment at a time. My, um, my kin was wanting to get up in the mornings and have a quiet time before the day started. But he said to me, mornings are so hard. My husband, I'm a morning husband, a morning person, my husband is not. In fact, one time he said to me, honey, Jesus doesn't even want to talk to me in the morning. <laughs> It's so hard for Ken to get up. What he did was, and you might want to try this, there's an app called Lectio 365, L-E-T-C-I-O 365. It's six minutes, and it's just beautiful. It starts with a couple of breaths, and then different voices every day read a scripture and give a short, a short talk about it. And Ken started doing that, and it became a habit, and now he looks forward to his time with Jesus every morning, but it started small. I wanted to do more exercise and skip more chocolate donuts. I have not skipped the chocolate donuts yet, but my son is a fitness trainer. And I said, you know, I just have trouble getting started. If you have trouble getting started with exercise, will you say yes, ma'am? Oh, good, it's not just me. Well, my son, Darren, the fitness trainer, gave me a really good idea. He said, Mom, just put your shoes on. Just put your walking shoes on and then walk four or five steps. And what happens is when you get started, those tiny steps move you forward and move you forward and eventually become a habit. Well, to keep moving up the mountain, did you notice the climbers had to let go of their handholds and footholds to reach the next right thing? I don't I would think if I was climbing like that, that would be the hardest part of the climb for me, to let go and reach the next thing. I think letting go can be so hard. There is an ancient parable that is a reminder of how easy it is to get trapped in our own hanging on, our own insecurities and anxieties that keep us from reaching towards the next right thing. And it's all about how hunters trap monkeys. Coconuts were hollowed out and filled with bananas and then tied to a tree. And a hole big enough for a monkey's hand was cut into each coconut. 
The monkeys would come and reach into the coconut for the food, but the holes were crafted in such a way that the monkey's flexible little hand could fit in there, but when he grabbed the banana and tried to pull it out, there was no way it would fit. So the monkey would become very insecure and anxious and wouldn't leave, would not let go. And that's how the hunters trapped them. All they had to do was let go, but their minds trapped them. You know, I wonder where in life are you holding on to something or clinging to something, a thought or a feeling that's trapping you, keeping you from doing the next right thing, from taking another step? Is it an unrealistic expectation of yourself, anger, resentment, or fear? Whatever it is, see if you can find the self-compassion and kindness that you easily give to others and gift it to yourself so that you can catch your breath and let go. Right now, I'm sure you would all agree with me, our world is filled with a tsunami of anxiety or depression. If you know somebody who is anxious or depressed, will you say, yes, ma'am? Oh, my goodness, we're trapped with it. And we need to remind ourselves to let go of anxiety. And here's a quick way to do that. One way to let go of it, if you have a lot of anxiety, is to let go of the would have, could have, should have in your life. You know what I mean? These things over here. Oh, my gosh, you look at the past and you think, oh, I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have done that. Or I wish I wouldn't have said that. Or I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know what I mean? All those past things, I don't know when they hit you, but a lot of times they hit me at night before I go to sleep as I'm laying in bed. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I buy that? You with me? That causes anxiety. The, oh no, what have I done? Or if you look this way and you start worrying about the what ifs. What if the economy tumbles? What if my son gets sick? What if my car quits? My car's making a weird sound on the way here. What if, what if, what if? You know what I mean? It's the what ifs and the why did I say that that causes us to feel trapped with anxiety and depression. But David reminds us, God is with us right now in this place. And so in this moment, right now, we're safe and we're okay. So if we can learn to stay in the present moment and not go either way with anxiety, we can get untrapped. Does that make sense? Turn to the person next to you and say, we're okay. We're okay. Right now, we're okay. Dallas Willard says, knowing God is with us is the basis of all physical, mental, and spiritual health. It reminds us that no matter what is going on in the world around us, this world is a perfectly safe place to be. Did you notice how our, our friends were climbing up that mountain? That they constantly encourage each other? Come on, take another step. Take another step. You can do it. Well, we have a fantastic encourager. His name is Peter. And his name, you've all heard, and he wrote an amazing book. I, I absolutely love, I think it might be my favorite verse in the whole Bible, Second Peter 1.3, where Peter is encouraging us how to live a righteous, godliness, a godly life by reminding us we have everything we need. Peter says, we have everything we need. God's divine power has given us everything we need 
for life and godliness. The power comes from God. It's divine. And it's within all of us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're filled with it. The word power translates dunamis. And it's our English word dynamite. We have the power within us to blast through any valley or any mountain that seems insurmountable that comes before us. God has given us that power. We just have to believe it and use it. You know, one of Stephen Chapman's son, Stephen Chapman is an amazing musician. And one of his sons accidentally hit his five-year-old sister Maria with a car in the driveway, fatally injuring her. Suddenly, Stephen found himself walking through his darkest valley. And he wrote about it in a song that became life-changing for me when a friend sent it to me, my friend Jill sent it to me, as I faced my own, maybe the darkest valley. And the title of the song is the next right thing, and take another step. So I would like to um, share the lyrics with that to you right now. Well, the band was playing, the flags were waving, and there you were, in the middle of a sunny day parade. The clouds were cheering, the sky was clear, and had a worry in the world, marching on, sure and steady, strong and straight. Take another step, and another step. Then the lightning flashed and the thunder crashed and suddenly it began to rain and everybody ran. Then the sky went black as midnight and you couldn't see, paralyzed by what you couldn't understand. And now, here you are. You're afraid to move. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. Take another step and another step. When the road ahead is dark and you don't know what to do, take another step and another step. We walk by faith and not by sight. We know it's true. We say it and sing it. We love the way it sounds. But none of us can even begin to truly understand what it really means till all the lights go out. And there we are. Nothing to hold on to. But the promises God's made to me and to you. So take another step and another step. So we would like to give you an invitation right now to take another step in the next right thing. You all should have a postcard on your chair. And we would like to give you the next few minutes to write one sentence of one next right thing that you could do, maybe even today, the next right thing. And if you would like to, there are some prayer uh, boxes. There's one over to the left of me. There's one in the back at the Welcome Center. There's one outside as you leave. You can drop those cards in the prayer boxes. You don't even have to put your name on it unless you want to. And the staff will pray over those cards this week because we want to respond and say, yes, God, we want to do the next right thing. So I'll pray for you and then you think about what's the next right thing you could do. Oh, God, thank you for the reminder that you have given us everything we need, that you are in us and through us and with us, even in this moment. Father, we rest in that. I thank you for these dear people. I pray that those that are going through a valley now, 
will feel the sense of your presence and the courage to take another step and another step. And Father, as we do, may the power that is within us change the world around us. We pray, God, that every step we take will be in the resurrected power of Jesus to the point it changes things, like a Disney movie, where where we walk, there'll be green things growing and life and new creation because we're walking in your power. God, may everything we touch bring glory to your name. And may every word we speak bring life and hope to this dry and thirsty world. Let it be so, dear Jesus, as together we take another step. Amen.